Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my survivor friends. This is another one of those interview segments that we're doing to keep you interested and engaged between seasons. So if you don't want to listen to this, now's your time to get off the plane. In this case, and it's going to be about 40 minutes, 30, 30, 40 minutes. In this case, I'm interviewing Jeff Brackett, who is an indie writer, an indie author, who's one of the also one of the members of our Apocalypse Support Group. Jeff was kind enough to let me listen to the audio of his first book, Half Past Midnight, which is a nuclear apocalypse story. And I listened through that and I enjoyed it. One of the things you'll hear us discussing is the sympathetic character of the, of there's a prepper who's like the main protagonist here. And I never really thought of these characters in this way. To me, there was always something a bit unsettling about the basic assumption of the prepper community and how they're they're painted. Um, so, but I, I I mean I agree it's good to be as prepared as possible, uh, as much as you can anyhow. But I worry about the self fulfilling nature of the preparedness, right? The underlying assumption. But in a broader sense, every character and every community no matter who it is, it's important to listen and to understand and not to treat people or groups as random caricatures or cutouts. Because in real life, IRL, no one is a group. No one is a caricature. In real life, everyone is an individual, a a living, breathing person. And they're making rational decisions in accordance with their worldview. And it's a lesson for me as a writer to see the good and the bad in every character's motivation and to work with that as part of the conversation, as part of the story. And that's why I am, and most of you probably are too, I imagine, drawn to that classic anti-hero archetype, like the man with no name, the road warrior. Love those characters. The character who you're not quite sure whose side they're on because ultimately they're on their own side with their own motivation. And I think that's an important lesson for us. We need to resist the easy answer, right? We need to understand that the vast majority of people are acting rationally in accordance with their worldview because humans have a tendency to take the shortcut of labeling people or labeling groups, categorizing, because then they don't have to do the hard work of understanding the worldview and the motivation. And that's lazy thinking, lazy writing. So anyhow, Jeff and I had a conversation around some of these things. Um, I would posit that there's too much of this us versus them thinking going on in the world today. And we, you know, it'd probably be better if we all took a breath to understand 
each other's and each other's motivations, uh, we might get along better. But anyhow, enough of that. Jeff and I have a good chat around the struggles of being an indie author, but also the opportunities, and we talk about his stories and his characters, and we get a bit into the detail of the creative process, and I find it fascinating how much the indie author world mirrors so many other worlds that I bump up against. It's the same in startups or in business or in sports, for instance, right? The ante to get into the game is a quality product. You have to start with a quality product. But that's you can't just have a quality product. You need more than that, right? Then there's this aspect of quantity. And indie authors, like so many creators, find that they they need, they're forced to create a lot of output to survive. And that shapes them in the creative process. And And finally, the third thing, is the much-hated process of sales and marketing, right? It's a universal tenant that the quality and the quantity being equal, that person who sells the most effectively gets the biggest piece of the pie. So you'll you'll hear that as well. And if you live long enough, you'll see these patterns in everything. By the way, I don't like to use that piece of the pie metaphor that much because it assumes there's a finite quantity of pie, that's a scarcity mindset. What you really want to do is think of it in terms of how do we make more pies so everybody can have a pie. That's abundance thinking. Enjoy the chat and keep surviving. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, we're recording. So, hello, Jeff. How are you? Do we have good energy today? Uh, you bet. 9.30 in the morning, and I've had a cup of coffee, so let's go. We were talking about, some on the Facebook, we were talking about um, what we would miss the most in the apocalypse, right? And right. I wrote, my post was, I would kill you for a cup of coffee in the apocalypse. <laughs> and I got censored by Facebook. They oh they, well, they, that doesn't surprise me. They said I was being hostile. So well, I've would. been uh, don't get between me and my coffee. Been thrown in Facebook jail myself. <laughs> yeah. So Jeff, give ended us... up quoting a science article. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no! It sounds like we got a little bit of a lag here, so we'll have to practice taking a a one breath beat between interactions. So give us the uh, 200 words on who you are and what you do. Well, I am Jeff Brackett. I am currently a full-time author, although 
that may change. That's uh, a rough gig. You know, they they have the, uh, the stereotype of the starving artist for a reason. Unless you get that, uh, that magic ticket, sometimes it's rough to m- try and make it as a writer. But uh, I've, I've had the very good fortune of having a wife that uh, has been able to support my habit. And uh, we're, we're going to try and, I guess you'd say, subsidize the income here because her job just went away recently. And we've got enough to live on, but it's don't know how long that's going to last. What are your books and what's your specialty? That's why we're talking, right? Right. Uh, let's see. The I've, I've got two main series going right now. Uh, the first one is the one that meshes in with what we're doing here. It's a post-apocalyptic series. Uh, yep. It started with Half Past Midnight. And there is a novella. I call it a companion novella called The Road to Rejas. And then a full-blown sequel called Year 12, which, as you might guess from its title, takes place 12 years after what I call Doomsday in the book. Yeah. And takes some of the characters from the first two and blends them together. Yeah. So I did. um, I actually read the uh, Half Past Midnight, the original novel. And this is your first novel. So you you said you've written better stuff after that. But then you sent me the audio, so I listened through it. Um, while I was out and about uh, last weekend doing my things or the weekend before. Half past midnight, this is a nuclear apocalypse, right? Right. Your protagonist is, for lack of a better description, a prepper, right? That's correct. I was interested by how you positioned your protagonist as a prepper, because maybe not in our audiences, but in the broader public, when you use that descriptor, a prepper, right? A lot of people will think here's, here's, you know, here's the psychotic guy hiding in his bunker writing um, manifestos, <laughs> right? Whereas you position of a, no, if there's actually a nuclear war, you actually need this guy. So talk to me a little bit about, because I know this is comes in part from some of your experience as well. Talk to me about what you're, what you were trying to do there. Well, uh, a couple of things. One is change the, the, the public perception of what prepping is. Uh, I mean, you know, most people, the only exposure they've had to prepping is, you know, shows on TV, you know, Doomsday Prepper and all of that crap. Um, that's really not what's going on. Think of them as uh, souped up Boy Scouts, really. They just like to be prepared for what might happen. And yeah, a lot of people get into it, you know, out of fear. You know, they, they for instance, right now, I am a member of, of a prepping group. We've got, uh, geez, I think we're pushing 1,400 members right now. And over the last couple of years, the numbers have been growing incredibly because people look at uh, COVID. They look at the economy. They look at the food shortages. They look at the gas prices. And it's like, hey, things are not going all right. And so a lot of people freak out and they look around for prepper groups. And yeah, there are going to be some militant groups out there. We, we definitely try and keep them out of the mix because the reality is if you can't last past, oh, say losing your job or, uh, you know, just a, an extended illness where you've lost some income then you are no way ready for the end of the world or an apocalypse. So we, we stress with people, 
just get a little extra food. Every time you go to the store, buy an extra cans of, you know, a few extra cans of something that you like. We generally try and calm people down because that, you know, the stuff you see on TV, the guy in the bunker, as you put it, who's, you know, got a million guns and five million rounds of ammunition, that's not your typical prepper. Most of them, you think of them more as homesteaders. There are people that grow their own food, preserve it, uh, learn different ways of uh, living off grid if it comes to it. And, you know, just in general, try and you know, prepare for what hardships life might bring you. You know, hence the word prepper. Yeah, so there's a couple of things in there. One is sort of this feeling that you need an insurance policy against um, disruption, right? Mm-hmm. And and that that sounds fairly rational, right? Um, you know, because right. prepping for a nuclear war is is a fool's errand. Because if there's a nuclear war, you know, none of us are going to walk away from that anyhow, right? So <laughs> whether or not you have three or four extra cans of uh, of Campbell's chunky chicken noodle is not going to make the difference in that scenario. So in in your case, the, the community is more about sort of uh, disruption insurance and then a back to the land kind of uh, thread, which is, has been common in society forever, right? Ever since the first machine uh, was smashed with a sledgehammer by the Luddites in England, you know, there's been that thread. No, because I definitely saw that in your book, right, where you didn't, you know, you didn't make your protagonist into a superhero, but you made him into an accountable, responsible citizen, right, who who had these, these skills right. that he had acquired in case of this disruption, which was interesting. I like how you did that. I grew up and lived in Houston for 50 years. And we had thunderstorms and hurricanes that caused... Uh, power interruptions for days. Luckily, I wasn't there for Harvey, so I didn't see the heavy flooding that they got shortly after I moved up to Oklahoma. When you're living, you know, without power, and whenever you've got that hurricane that's rolling into the Gulf, one of the first things that always happens is all of a sudden the grocery store shelves are empty. You know, people wait to the last minute and they they panic. You know, bread, milk, whatever basics they can think of. And it expands during the panic. And we try and show people is there's no need to panic if you treat it like insurance. You got extra food, don't sweat it. Don't join the panic. Stay home. Leave the food for the people that don't have it. And try and, and, you know, if you need to hunker down, then you hunker down. If you can get out of Dodge, then you get out of Dodge. We learned very quickly during Rita, you know, getting out of Dodge is that presents its own problems, too. Right. I was working IT at that point, and our company, unfortunately, our disaster recovery site was in uh, Port Fouchon, Louisiana. And if you remember, when Rita hit just a few weeks after Katrina, our disaster recovery site was gone. So they had us scrambling, trying to uh, unload our servers from the building, pack them in a U-Haul, and drive them up to a facility in North Texas. We all got to the building at midnight. We looked down, and the roads were gridlocked. And that was the night before Rita hit. There was no way we were getting servers out of that building and up to North Texas. Yeah. Yeah, that's poor, poor emergency response planning. So in that, <laughs> in that sense, you as a, you know, preppers in general, as a community become a buffer that helps with the disruption itself. 
right? So you can buffer that response a little bit. And that's what you're talking about. So what what um, exactly what caused you to try to get into being a full time writer? What I mean, what are your influences in terms of the uh, the stuff you read and the stuff that inspires you? Um, ironically enough, not post apocalyptic authors. <laughs> I uh, my, I guess my heaviest influence would be Dean Koontz. Okay, um, yeah. I've always enjoyed his type of writing. You know, the the macabre that's kind of mixed with the everyman. I've just enjoyed his writing style. Now, granted, he can have some real stinkers, just like everyone. But when he gets it right, man, his books are just amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, he's he's a good writer, and he's um he does well with the craft of writing as well, right? Yes. So yeah, he absolutely he he's a very technical writer as well. Tells a very good story, strong dialogue. Yeah, and and one of the things he's really good at is. When you have those scenes, let's call them like chase scenes, right? Or any kind of tension building and release. He's really good at that. Right. That that foreboding, yeah. foreshadowing, and then entering into the moment and then the resolution at the end. Um, yeah. Right. I agree. It's uh I I preferred him over King. And uh, you know, for the most part anyway. King, man, when he got it right, it was just amazing too. But you know, we go here from post-apocalyptic to horror at that point. And yeah, I think King has a, has, it's just, again, a very technically strong author. You know, it's, it's basically his, his skill set is above par, right? You know, it's like that person who could hit a thousand foul shots in a row. He's just technically uh, amazing. You know, I'll tell you, um, I think, Kuntz has a good balance. So he has some com- comedic books that I really like, like the Odd Thomas series, which you wouldn't think of those as yeah. comedy per se, but they are, right? They're funny as hell. Yeah, they absolutely are. Yeah. And TikTok. Did you ever read that? I don't know if I have or not. I mean, I am a sort of a voracious reader. So a lot of times I, <laughs> I read stuff and then forget <laughs> I've read it. I'll do that thing where I'll be at a used book st- sale and I'll, and I'll buy a bunch of books. And then I'll start reading them and go, dang, I've already read all these books. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't get to read as much as I used to. Uh, you know, when you're trying to write, then you've got to give up some of your free time. Yep. And I have, I've gotten to where I'm spending probably about 90% of my free time with the, either the writing, the editing. Uh, oh, God, the marketing is terrible. But uh, writing is just... You know, they say if you if you can make a living doing something you love, then you'll never work another day. I have been very fortunate with that in the last several years. Yeah. Well, I find that there's um, you get into flow states, right? And if you can get into those flow states, it's um, it's a blast. It's it's like it's like riding a, a roller coaster, right? Where the story kind of writes right. itself and you are just sort of watching right this this yeah unfold. exactly but that's one of the other reasons why you have to really minimize uh disruptions in those writing sessions because if your phone buzzes you just blew yourself out of flow state and it's going to take you a, yeah. you may never get back in or if you do it'll take you x minutes to get back in right that's a precious thing that flow state when you're writing it's and and it's it's gleeful, right? It's 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 just you know you're smiling when you're when it's happening. I'm I'm with you 100, and that's why I do it as well. So it's what like else? Characters just take over. Yeah, the characters take over exactly. Right. It's like, huh, where did that come from, right? 
Who are your, your sort of favorite contemporary indie authors right now in, you know, this little circle of uh, starving artists that we hang out with? Oh, well, my favorites, of course, are the ones that aren't really starving anymore. I have uh, post-apocalyptic is not the only genre I write in. Uh, I also write uh, some cyberpunk. I've got a, another series there called Amber Payne. And I'm about to uh, make my first foray into uh, military science fiction. And as a result, I've been reading a lot of military sci-fi authors, um, Craig Martell, Terry Mixon, uh, people that, you know, most of, most of your audience probably have never heard of, but they're really good indie authors that they're not being pretentious. They're not even trying to go, you know, traditional publishing route simply because why would you give 70% of what you earn to someone else after you've written the book when they aren't doing anything for you anymore. Yeah. And frankly, they, they really aren't in a position, especially for new authors to do anything for you anyhow. Right. So well, you know, they're, exactly. they're not gonna you know make the effort to do the individual marketing and publish uh, in that, in that world anymore. Right. It just doesn't, doesn't exist. That is why the big six publishing is now the big five and, they're still struggling. They lean so heavily on people like Kuntz and King and, you know, all the big name authors. What are they going to do when those guys retire? They have yeah. killed their mid list and it's, uh, it's going to be rough for them. Amazon is, you know, the giant that is pretty much taking over a lot of different industries, but especially the uh, music and writing industries. So the positive is that anyone, you, I, anybody who wants to can just start writing and write a book and get it published in the indie world. It's the barrier right. to entry is really That's low. The negative is that these corporations, Amazon and others are very good at commoditizing content. Right. And we saw it with the right. music industry, right. They hollowed out the music industry. Um, so, you know, instead of selling, you know, if you got lucky and got a publishing contract and sell your book for, I don't know, $15.99 in the bookstore where you get, you know, 20% of that. Now you have to write five of those and sell them at $1.99 to $2.99 because that's what the market buys. That 20%, that only goes to their big names. Most right. authors get more like 10 or 12 yeah, and, and authors in general, creatives in general, this is not just author, authors, it's any sort of creative, are really bad at marketing. I can hear that in your voice. And they're really bad at asking oh, yeah. for money. <laughs> they're really bad at asking for money as well, or talking about money in the most cases. So they tend to get right. um, taken advantage of by by other people who, who basically sell their content and make money off it, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. So, yeah. You have, you when go. you go... When you go into the business, you, you have to understand that what you're doing is you're telling stories. Whereas big publishing companies, they're selling paper. The, that's the big difference. That's why you'll see that even the electronic uh, versions of the books are still selling for $12, $14, $16 a pop when it's, you know, it's ones and zeros in a digital format. They're, they should be making their money on the paper side, but they can't compete anymore. And in, their, in the, the big corporate you know, mindset, they can't give up money. They can't conceive of the idea that selling something for less will get them more sales. And the indies, 
as far as, I mean, you know, most of us are just happy to make, you know, five bucks on a book. Well, or to sell a book for five bucks because you don't really make it. Amazon, you know, has to take their cut and you've got editors and formatters and cover artists and, you know, all the, all of the business end. And you're right. Yeah. I am terrible with the marketing part. So that's so something they, that, uh, so from a, you know, sort of a computer background myself, sort of an algorithmic background, it's also, you know, I think it, it, it comes down to like being a movie star, you know, being that famous or successful indie author is like being a movie star. You know, there's a certain amount of chance involved, but there's also product quality. I think it does naturally sort of filter out the top quality and the top what the market wants, right? I mean, the market is unforgiving, but it's also very specific. It'll tell you what it wants. Um, so the authors that that resonate with that market demand tend to do do very well. Um, but it's a very small percentage, right? It's a very small percentage. The majority of indie authors end up in that that vast middle um, where you know they're surviving or not surviving, right? Um, so I think it does filter right. a little bit necessarily. I mean, it's not it's not 100% clean, but it does filter on product quality, right? So it's got to, you know, again, it's that one or 2% top product quality and, uh, and what the market wants, right? And, and I see these, I see these books where it's really obvious that some author said, okay, the market wants, I don't know, dragon fantasies. And they start writing a bunch of yeah. dragon fantasies, right? And, and of course they fail because it isn't what they want, <laughs> right? That's the most successful indies you'll hear them repeatedly uh, harp on the idea that you don't write to market and at least not in the sense that you, you don't change what you're writing just to match what the current trend is. What you do is you write the stories that you would like to read. You write for yourself and you will find an audience because there are other people that have the same taste. And if you're enjoying it, then it comes through in your writing. Right. And you'll find that audience and, and that audience will find you. That, now the caveat there is that audience might be 10 people. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, you know, there's the old concept in uh, web 2.0 of, you know, all you really need is a, a thousand true fans, right? And if you can have yes. a thousand yes. true fans who will buy anything you sell, then you can, you can survive on that. Right. So that's really yep. what it's about is these micro communities um, like the one we're building around the after the apocalypse stuff, these micro communities um, that yeah. you know, people raise their hand. So in that case, it's an honest sort of marketing, I guess. There's a lot to be said for word of mouth in that instance too. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got what uh, you're pushing 200 people on your Facebook page, correct? Something like that. Yeah. I think it's yeah. 170. Yeah. So you're, you're going to be up at 200 before too long, but those, those 200 are going to tell friends. And as the numbers grow, they will begin to grow faster. Assuming an unconstrained market, that is true, right? Um, yeah. Depends on the size true. of the niche. But in, in this case, I think you can you can basically, for, for my purposes, it's an, unconstr- it's an infinite market for my purposes. Uh, probably because well, I, I aim too low. Yeah, you have to understand how big the market is, too. I, I, that was something... I was very lucky to fall in with a good community of authors when I, you know, with my first book. And this was 2011, 2012. 
uh, when I, the end of 2011, when I first published uh, Half Past Midnight, that's how long ago it was. And there was a, a group of authors that, that I met and, and fell in with. And this was right around the time that Kindle was becoming really popular. And Amazon uh, did the first uh, opportunity, marketing opportunity for you to put your book out there for free as an experiment. And they convinced me to do that with my book. And this is like three weeks after I published. And I'm terrified because, you know, all of these people that are going to get my book for free, they're not going to buy it. You know, why yep. would they? They've got it now. Yep. The, I put it up for free for 24 hours and gave away over 11,000 copies. Mm. And it terrified me. And after, after the reviews started coming in and, you know, uh, people saw it listed, all of a sudden, I was selling probably, well, at first I was selling like 300 copies a day in sales. And it, this went on for close to a year. You know, gradually they dropped down to where, you know, you're, you're just getting, you know, 5, 10, 20 books a day. That first year, I made over $20,000. I think it's, it's, you know, gauche to, to talk about money, but just to let other authors know, that's how I used to work in the old days. But th what that did was that gave me an idea of how big the pie really was, because I may have given away, you know, a big piece of it, but there was a whole lot more pie out there. And it was enough to, you know, to keep me going and to make me think maybe this writing thing, you know, that I was just kind of playing with, maybe it's a viable option in the future. Right. So what else do you listen to in terms of, um, you know, podcasts or, or that sort of audio? By the way, you're, you're, the guy you got to read your book was awesome, uh, especially with the protagonist, the voicing of the protagonist. Yeah. I think he, he nailed the protagonist 100%. Yeah, that was uh, uh, Corey Snow. And you, you know, because you've already been through this, going through the auditing process or auditioning process to find the right voice is, is it, it's an interesting endeavor. When you find the right voice and you know that you've got exactly what you were after, it makes all the difference in the world. Uh, Corey did a fantastic job. Uh, you know, he did the first two in that series. He did uh, Half Past Midnight on the Road to Rejas. Something happened when I tried to get with him on year 12. Um, actually, I know several things happened. Uh, Amazon had purchased ACX at that point, Audible. Right. right. And they started changing the agreements, uh, change percentages, available for royalty share. They changed, uh, basically they encouraged a more professional, I guess, mo uh, uh, marketing model, which is great for the narrators and the voice actors. It's a little tougher on the royal royalty holders, the rights holders rather. And it, it started kicking a lot of people out of the field. It started making it tougher for them either to uh, find the right voice or to be able to afford the right voice. Uh, the, the third book, year 12 in that series, uh, I ended up having to go with someone else. Corey started, uh, started to do it and something happened in his life. I didn't cry, but he was unable to finish. And I was, you know, I was willing to wait for him for a while. I kept telling him, but you know, a year later, I still didn't have any, uh, you know, didn't have my files to publish and, 
you know, a year's worth of sales and a year's worth of momentum is lost at that point. And, you know, we, we parted ways. It was amicable, but it was, it was rough losing that voice. Yeah, no, he did a good job. And so what else do you listen to right now? I mean, you stumbled into my podcast. I don't know if you've ever seen the series Orphan Black. No. Uh, but Okay. It is, <laughs> it is a surprisingly uh, uh, excellent television show. Uh, it's canceled now. I think they had three seasons. They always cancel the good ones, right? Yep. But uh, the star of the show, Tatiana Amazingly, who is now doing She-Hulk, she played like, I guess, a dozen different roles in the, the show because it's a show about clones. And what's the name and of it? And yet she managed Orphan Black. Um, it's on one of the streaming services. I think it might be on Netflix. If not, then it's probably Amazon Prime. Okay. And it is amazing, but they have now, uh, or she, uh, I don't know if she got permission or bought the rights, what the deal was, but she did a uh, an Orphan Black podcast where she extended the story beyond what they did on the television show. That has been a lot of fun. I've been listening to that. There was uh, oh another post-apocalyptic one that, that I have enjoyed. It's an, uh, what is it? An alien invasion apocalypse. And the name of it is End of All Hope. To be perfectly honest, a lot of what I listen to on podcasts are, you know, writing podcasts, you know, bits about the business, uh, you know, how to, how to run your Amazon ads, you know, other boring stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you got to keep the, keep bread on the table. So, all right, let's, uh, we're, we're over our time here. So let me bring us towards the exit. Um, All right. the, the shelter exit. We're going to go to the shelter exit and throw you outside into the apocalypse. So no! uh, tell us, tell us uh, one thing about you that uh, we don't know. Tell us something. Tell us something we'd be surprised with. Oh, something you'd be surprised with. Well, I've already gone through the prepper bit. Um, you want an easier question? I can give you an easier question. Sure. Okay. <laughs> because I think. Most of most of my stuff is is out there in the books. So, <laughs> okay, what was your first concert you ever saw? Part B is what was your favorite concert you ever saw and why? Oh man, first concert, sir. For a guy as old as I am, that goes back a ways. I think Chicago when they came to Houston. This was back in the days when a concert ticket was like thirty bucks, and high school kids could afford them. Chicago. Um, All right. Yes. And your favorite? Um, my favorite. This is going to sound really weird. Uh, well, it might not for some, some people. Um, but after this little movie uh, came out, it was, uh, you might have heard of it. It's a little movie called Star Wars. Yep. There was a, a, there was a, a John Williams did the, the soundtrack to it. And yeah. he went around the country doing... Basically, he played the soundtrack to Star Wars, and he did it to a laser light show. Oh, no kidding. And this was the first laser light show that I ever saw, and it, it still sticks out in my mind. Oh, that's great. And yeah, very, very much Nerdville, but you know, Star Wars with the laser show. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, thanks for your time this morning. Good luck with all you got going on, and let me know if I can do anything to help you. Uh, 
Keep surviving. I appreciate it. You bet. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.